Like there's never been a moment when advice experts and newspaper columnists were like, romance, the kids are doing it great. They're perfect <laughs> at it. You're listening to Labels of Love. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Jenkins, a philosophy professor at the University of British Columbia and the author of What Love Is and What It Could Be. Today, I'm talking about dating with Moira Weigel. Moira is a writer and an academic currently based at Harvard University. She's the author of Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, and she's the editor, with a few other people, of Logic Magazine, which is a new magazine all about technology. I talked with Moira about what dating is, how long exactly it's been around for, and why, throughout its entire history, it seems to have been regarded as either in some sort of crisis or else actually dying out. It first occurred to me to research dating or to write about the subject of dating back when I was in grad school in New Haven about 2012 or 2013. There was this spate of articles and books that were sort of, I don't want to say panic-inducing, that sounds negative, but (laughs) panic-inducing. I remember Hannah Rosen, the journalist at The Atlantic, had this big article called The End of Men. There was this book about hookup culture that came out called The End of Sex. There was like a big New York Times article that everyone's mom or aunt or whoever probably mailed to them called (laughs) The End of Courtship, Uh, all within the period of a couple months. I was like, these are very big claims. (laughs) It's like, gee, I hope that's not (laughs) true. And what I realized very quickly when I started to look at the history of this thing we call dating is that at every moment in time, from like the very beginning of when people started doing it, experts have proclaimed that dating was dying or that dating was in crisis or that young men and young women weren't going about courtship properly. The word date first appears in print, to our knowledge, like in the sense that we use it now, in 1896. There were a couple reasons that people start doing something they called dating, which is to say, like, going out, meeting people on their own, not supervised by their parents or by Uh their priest or rabbi or whoever, more and more people moving to cities during Mm -hmm. that period. But it also especially has everything to do with women taking paid work outside the home. You know, quote unquote, nice women didn't go out in public by themselves in the 19th century. They certainly didn't go out with men they didn't know. They certainly did not let those men buy them something in return for romantic or sexual attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, And indeed, Mm -hmm. the very first people who went out on dates uh, were working class women, often immigrants and women of color, and were constantly harassed by the police and even arrested for it. I mean, it's fascinating, this like fixation on prostitution or the special moral horror that it raises in the 19th century is about women demanding money for things that they're expected to do for free. Dating starts out as a very much working class practice. The turning point really comes around the end of World War One. Basically, after World War One, there's a story that appears in Ladies' Home Journal, which is the biggest <laughs> magazine in, biggest circulation magazine in the world, about a sorority sister, a nice middle-class white girl in college, going on dates. So much of the anxiety 
society is always about women gaining new kinds of power and new kinds of autonomy. Women who are entering colleges, you know, they're in sort of the strongest right. position uh, to make new kinds of social claims, to break into kinds of work that men had controlled. I feel like a big reason I wanted to write a whole book about this and go deep into the archives about it was because I realized that this endless conversation about dating and how people aren't doing it right is almost always a conversation about how men aren't acting like proper men, women aren't acting like proper women. Mm -hmm. The world isn't going to get reproduced. You know, the world isn't right. going to continue in the right way. And I think you see that when women are first entering college in the 19 aughts, you still have experts like G. Stanley Hall saying women will become barren if they go to college. They'll become, quote, functionally castrated if wow. they study too much. <laughs> um, and I think we see it in 2012 because of all these anxieties about, you know, the quote-unquote man session and this idea that the economic recession mm -hmm. is hurting men more than women. There's this perception that, you know, men are losing ground. You know, women no longer feel they have to be with men and therefore men are anxious that they can't assume they're entitled to a partner or a wife. dating is is when courtship moves into a market sphere it makes courtship cost money for the first time mm -hmm. which it hadn't you know mr darcy didn't have to buy anything to go see is it elizabeth bennett yeah <laughs> like what's yeah. her first name you know on the other hand it involves all these new forms of emotional labor of you know presenting the self in a certain way uh, and that can range from having to buy the clothes and the makeup that make you look good to putting in the time, you know, the time and free work on your Tinder profile right, that make right. you appealing. Uh -huh. So it's like a genius business invention. Over the course of this history of dating, the ways we think about erotic life or romantic life have been so economized or made mm -hmm. economic. You know, we say we're on the market or off the market or hard to get or, you know, friends with benefits or damaged mm -hmm. goods or whatever. But, but that it's sort of like we're in the precarious freelance slash flex economy of dating. And it's like, it's good because you have more flexibility. It's hard um, because there are no guarantees. Right. Many of us feel this way in our work lives, right? It's like you can't commit to just one line of work because there's this sense that everyone is supposed to be sort of multitasking and have one foot out the door. I got a brand new sweetie. There's this deep problem with dating platforms. They're great tools for all kinds of things and have been really like world changing in a good way for all kinds of people. So it's not like an easy critique, but it is a fundamental fact that what they are designed to do is not to pair people off. Their business model of all of them is no secret. <laughs> is to keep people on the app. I think uh, I think there's this fundamental contradiction that what these apps train us to do is to process large quantities of people. You know, what's true of OkCupid is true of the bartender or a bar owner, too. Like, a bar is also a platform mm -hmm. that wants people to keep coming out. You know, when your mom and your aunt were watching you and Mr. Darcy, <laughs> your mom had an economic interest in you and Mr. Darcy getting married. Like, he's going to get 500 pounds a year or whatever. <laughs> a bartender has no economic stake in whether or not you get married to the person you're there with. The owner of that platform's interests and your interests are not aligned. 
because I'm watching her all the night and all day. I think if there's one thing that really came through to me in reading like a hundred years worth of dating advice and a hundred years worth of, you know, individual accounts of why dating could be a maddening and negative experience, it really is that starkly differentiated binary gender norms make everyone miserable. <laughs> I do get a sense uh, that younger people have more flexible and also more realistic ideas mm -hmm. about gender than even I did mm -hmm. growing up in the 90s because courtship in the end is so deeply imbricated with economics. Um, greater equality among actors uh, is one of the best ways to improve everyone's happiness and everyone's outcomes. Many thanks to today's guest, Moira Weigel. You can find out more about Moira's work at moirawigel.com or follow her on Twitter where she is Moira G. Weigel. That's M-O-I-R-A-G-W-E-I-G-E-L. This episode has featured music by Dan Yankee, Scott Joplin, and Al Jolson. And as always, you can find lots more information and links in the show notes. And if you are enjoying Labels of Love, please take a moment to leave a nice rating and review on iTunes. Um, that will help more people to find the podcast in the future. You can find more information about my work at carriejenkins.net, or you can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Carrie Jenkins. Thank you so much for listening. You know, mm -hmm. contrary to the best clickbait, uh, sex is not over. <laughs>